to our special Christmas morning, or Christmas week Bible study. Uh, my name is Scott Ross, and I uh, appreciate you jumping on board. We do a Bible study every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. It's designed for men, although I suspect there are some well-intentioned females that are jumping on board the phone as well. Um, but we do a study on how to become a multi-generational visionary. Uh, but today we're going to take a break from that, and we've kind of opened this up to anybody who wants to participate because obviously this week we're celebrating um, arguably the most significant holiday and holy day of the Christian faith, and that is the celebration of Christmas. So uh, today we wanted to just uh, run through some information that I thought would be really edifying to anybody, uh, whether they're a believer, uh, and particularly if they're not a believer, um, of what it is that we're, we're celebrating and why uh, we feel so strongly about it. So but let's, um, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Lord, I just thank you so much for this week and what this week represents, your Advent, and I thank you so much for all these folks who are on the phone with us today, and I pray, Lord, that you would just use me and speak through me, and I pray that you would open their hearts to receive and um, enable us to go forward with the information we're going to discover this morning and uh, do things that would bring you great glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so, you know, um, a lot of people, you know, Christmas is just, uh, it's, it's, you know, we, 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 it's very common for us today to lament the commercialization of Christmas. We all um, talk about the fact that it's become about, you know, buying things and giving material things and um, that we've lost the real meaning of Christmas. But, you know, I really want us to look at what, what we mean when we say the real meaning of Christmas. What is this idea of celebrating the birth of Jesus? And why is it that Christians are so um, emphatic about making it about Jesus? You know, um, I personally have a little bit of a, a, a ruffling of my feathers when people want to say happy holidays to me and they kind of refuse to say Merry Christmas. Well, why Why do I feel so strongly about that? Why is it so important to me that we say Merry Christmas? And, um, you know, beyond the fact that technically the word holiday means holy day. That's where we get the word holiday. And if you uh, actually look it up, there is only one holy day recognized by the United States government and the reason why government offices are closed, the reason why banks are closed, and the reason why employees are given the day off, and that is because the government has said, we're going to recognize that as a, as a very particularly holy day. And that holy day is Christmas. Now, that's not to say that other faith systems don't have days that they celebrate. It's just that our society has said that this particular day is a special importance and that it is so significant that we want as a society to recognize it. Well, what is so significant about Christmas? What is it that, that happened there? I mean, most of us know the story of Christmas. We know, you know, this idea that there's this husband and wife and they travel a really long way and they're riding on a donkey and she's pregnant and it's in the middle of winter and they get to this inn and there's no room and so they have to go into this really, you know, um, less than optimal setting, and she gives birth to this baby, and there's wise men who come, and they bring gifts, and shepherds hear angels, and all of us know the story, but most of us really don't understand the significance of what just happened there and why it is that we are so, so focused on this day. So today I wanted to do that. So I want us to look, if you have your Bibles and your pen and paper, what I want you to do is open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Galatians 4, 4. And it says, when the fullness of time, or in my Bible it says, when the appropriate time had come, God sent out his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we may be adopted as sons with full rights. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts who calls Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you are also an heir through God. 
if you look at all of Scripture, I know that for people who are not believers, the Bible can be an intimidating thing. And even for Christians, the Bible can be intimidating. It's in many cases when pe- people's Bibles are really thick, it's just a thick book in general is intimidating. I mean, we look at Moby Dick and we're like, wow. We look at War and Peace. Who would con- who would even come? attempt to tackle that monster of a book. Well, we look at the Bible kind of the same way. It's like, wow, so many words, so many pages. And then, of course, there's the notion that it's so ancient. I mean, it's thousands of years old. And even the, even the, the newest um, New Testament book is more than um, 1,700, 1,800 years old. And much of it being Old Testament seems very, um, you know, how could I understand what it means? How can I understand what they're saying? There's all these names that are, uh, are, are difficult to pronounce and places I've never heard of. And it just seems like it, the thing is so cryptic. But I just want to encourage you, the Bible is really not, in, not that cryptic. In fact, it's, it's quite clear. And if you will just open your mind to um, examining the Word and just just read it as you'd read anything um, plainly, you'll start to see that the Bible will come alive for you and that the Word of God um, will start to get into your heart and get into your life and do significant things. But if you look at the totality of Scripture, I'll just tell you that for those of you who don't know, the Bible is divided into two parts, the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament is 39 books. The New Testament is 27 books, making 66 books altogether. And if you look at all 66 books, the central figure throughout all Scripture, and understand, these books were written by more than 40 different authors across more than 2,000 years of time on more than two continents, and yet there is a central figure and a central message through the entire thing, and that is the conquering Christ, the Messiah. In the Old Testament, we're going to examine that. In the Old Testament, the Messiah was there as well. Jesus Christ was central to the Old Testament, and of course, in the New Testament, he is central. And so what I want us to do is look at very, very briefly, because we only have an hour to be together, I just want us to do a brief survey of where we see this idea show up in Scripture that that is represented in what's said in Galatians 4.4, that in the fullness of time, the Messiah came. In my Bible, uh, I have a uh, net version of the Bible, New English Translation, and it says when the appropriate time came. The idea is that there was this specific time that had been planned forever that the Messiah would show up, and when that appropriate time came, he showed up. So what, what is that idea of this appropriate time? Turn with me to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. And I'm just going to give you a a real quick synopsis. You know, um, Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation. And most of us are familiar with Genesis 1-1. It's one of the most familiar passages in all the scripture. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So, This assumption is made from the very beginning of Scripture. No one ever tries to explain God, explain who he is, explain how he came about. It just is that he is. And he creates the earth in six literal days. And I know that many of us were taught that that's not true. Um, I'll just tell you that the scientific support for six literal days by far exceeds the scientific support for any other theory. Um, But we don't have time for that right now. But he, he, he creates the earth in six literal days, and he creates mankind as the last thing that he creates. And man is um, his vice regent on the earth. Man is made in his image. He is literally the reflection of God. And he, man is in total communion with God. God has given man everything he needs in the garden. He's given him everything to sustain himself, to have a, a, an amazing existence, and he's in complete relationship with God. And God says to man, listen, there's only one thing that you can't eat, and that is this fruit from this particular tree. Well, um, we all know the story. Eve and Adam go to that tree. 
Um, Eve is, 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 you know, um, traditionally looked at as the bad guy. I'll tell you that um, men are just as culpable for the problem because Eve is deceived by the serpent. But one of the reasons she's deceived is because Adam, her husband, is standing there silent, not leading spiritually as he should. And so he allows the serpent to deceive his wife. And then he makes the secondary mistake of allowing his wife to further suck him in to the deception. So they eat of the fruit. And when they do, something terrible happens. So let's look at that. Let's look at um, chapter 3 of Genesis. It says, now, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I just want to stop down here for a second. I just want to point out the temptation of the serpent. The temptation is not that the fruit is better for you. It's not that it's going to make you happier. It's not that um, – the fruit is going to give you six-pack abs or, you know, a Ferrari. The, the, the temptation of the serpent is if you eat of it, you're going to be like God. Let me just say to you that, that this is the problem for all of humankind. Even today, my own sinful nature is such that I desire to be in control. I desire to be in charge. I desire for things to be the way I think they should be. If it doesn't make sense to me, it's wrong. If it makes sense to me, it's right. That's how I view the world because I'm a sinner. Because all sin is rooted in this idea of pride. We want to usurp the natural order of things, the order in which God is in charge. So going back to the scripture, that is the temptation here. You'll be like God. And so Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. Now, at this point, we, we skip to um, verse 10. God's going through the garden. He's like, hey, guys, where are you? And man answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some. It's so funny. You know, the guy's trying to blame the woman as if it's her fault when he's standing right there. So first, uh, and, and uh, just an aside, men on the phone, this is just your 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 you know, an example of one of the things that we have to overcome as men. Um, we have to get over this idea of, of um, you know, blaming others and, 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 and rationalizing our own sin away. So then it says, um, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Now, he begins to, God begins to go through this series of cursings, okay? And then we get to verse 15, and we have one of the most significant scriptures in all uh, or verses in all of scripture. And he says to the woman or to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Your offspring will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, this is known, I'm going to use a big word here, don't worry about it, it's called the Proto-Evangelion. This means the first ever pronouncement of the gospel. All the way here in Genesis, right at the beginning, we have a pronouncement that a seed of a woman is going to come that is going to crush the serpent. That the serpent and his evils and everything that he's going to bring into the world are going to be destroyed and conquered via this offspring that is going to show up. And so right there, from then on, all of Scripture is about that offspring coming. 
in all of the Old Testament for thousands and thousands of years, they were waiting and they were hoping and they were pining because they knew they were promised the deliverer. They knew they were promised a way out. And he hadn't come. And they were looking forward to that day, looking forward to that day, looking forward to that day. And then in, you know, Matthew and in Luke and in Mark, we have that day occurring. And as it said in in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. So right there in Genesis 3. Now, what we're going to do now, guys, is we're going to look at the prophecies of Christ because see, one of the things that's amazing is that, um, that that gives us confidence in the Scripture is all of the prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ Himself, all of the predictions of who the Messiah would be, how He would be, what He would be like, what He would do, how He would die, all of those things existed in the Old Testament thousands of years before Jesus Christ is born. And so when we look at Christ's birth, how, how is it that we can know that he is who he says he is? And let me just say this, because I meant to talk about this earlier. Really, for every human being, there is one question that has to be answered in your life. It is the overriding, most central question in your life. Until you have come to a definitive answer to this question in your own mind, you can have no peace. And that question is, what do I do with the person of Jesus Christ? Because, see, Jesus Christ is literally a splinter in your brain because he has presented something. He's presented a a, a series of statements and claims that are so crazy, they're so outlandish, that they are either true or they've got to be rejected. But if they're true, the implications of them are so far-reaching, we have to respond. Our whole life has to respond. And so, for instance, Jesus said that he is God. He said I am the only way to get to the Father. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one enters the Father unless they go through me. Isn't that a crazy claim? I mean, think about the the just audacity of that claim. A lot of people want to shoot the messenger. They look at Christians and they say, Christians are so bigoted. They're so narrow-minded. They're so exclusive. They think they have some sort of corner on the truth. Well, it's not that Christians think that. It's that Christ thought that. Christ said he is the only way. So what we've got to do is, as people is we've got to say, what do I do with that statement? Because a lot of people want to rationalize and make Jesus this real fluffy, soft figure. They say things like, Jesus is so loving. He was such a good teacher. He was such a nice guy. Let me tell you, the Jesus of Scripture doesn't reflect anything that Oprah or the New Ageists or the people in our society commonly want you to think about Jesus. Jesus was a divisive figure. Jesus said that people are going to follow him. They've got to hate everything else. They've got to leave their father, their mother, their sister, their brother. They've got to leave everything they love. They've got to hate everything else because they got to love him so much. He said he came so that people would divide over him. He said he was going to be a stumbling block for people. And people say, you know, Jesus said, don't judge. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus, in fact, taught us to judge, and he judged people all the time. He called the Pharisees, you know, serpents. He called them a a brood of vipers. He called them gravestones and whitened sepulchers. He he called them hypocrites. He went into the the temple with a whip and a club and and just, just trashed the place. So Jesus cannot be this soft, fuzzy, nice teacher. He is either fully God, fully man, the Messiah, the only way to heaven, or He's this completely crazy, lunatic criminal that we should run from and we should keep our children from ever learning anything about him. He's nowhere in between. There is no ground for neutrality when it comes to Christ. So 
I have personally examined all those claims. I have personally dedicated my life to deciding what do I do with this person of Jesus. And I have come to the conclusion that when you look at the historical record, when you look at the the evidence for who he claims to be, when you look at the legal evidence for who he claims to be, when you look at the scientific evidence for the, the, the divinity of Scripture, the divinity of of, of Christ, when you look at the scientific evidence for everything the Bible claims about itself, I have come to the conclusion that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is God himself. And one of the most, one of the most significant sources of proof we have for that are this series of prophecies. I'm going to read you a quote from this guy named Dr. A.T. Pearson, who wrote a book called Many Infallible Proofs. And he said, so specific And so voluminous are the Old Testament predictions, and so complete is their fulfillment in the New Testament, there would be no honest infidel in the world were Messianic prophecy studied, nor would there be any doubting disciples if this fact of prediction and fulfillment were fully understood. And the sad fact is we have yet to meet the first honest skeptic or critic who has carefully studied the prophecies which center in Christ. Here indeed is God's rock of ages and faith's unshakable standing place. What he's saying there is you cannot be an honest skeptic and look at the prophecies for Christ and come away an unbeliever. It's just not possible to be intellectually honest and look at the prophecies for Christ and come away thinking anything other than that Christ is who he said he is. Now, there's more than 300 prophecies for Christ that are fulfilled just in his birth, life, death, and resurrection. Just that. Having nothing to do with all of his future coming, his second coming, there's more than 300 prophecies. We have no way to go through all of those today. But the first thing, we're going we're to go through a couple of significant ones. The first is his family tree. The Old Testament predicted who the Messiah's family tree would be. The Jews, more than anyone else in all of ancient, um, the ancient world, all of antiquity, valued their ancestry, and they kept very meticulous records on their genealogies. You know, this guy, and I'm sure that when you've read the, 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 the Bible, you've seen this happen, and these are some of the things that drive us crazy today because it seems so hard for us to understand, but it's this name begat that name, that name begat that name, that name begat that name. It's just one generation after another. God is a multi-generational God. He works through the generations, and they kept meticulous records of those generations. Well, in Genesis, in Genesis 9, 26, and 27, it said – so there were three sons of Noah. The Messiah was going to come through one of those sons being Shem. That's told us in Genesis 9, 26, and 27. Now, of the descendants of Shem, we are told that the Messiah is going to come through a guy named Abraham. That is told us in Genesis 12, 2, and 3, and also in Genesis 22, 18. Now, of the sons of Abraham, we're told that the Messiah would come through Isaac in Genesis 21, 12. And then of the two sons of Isaac, we are told that he's going to come through Jacob. That's told us in Genesis 35, 10 through 12, and Numbers 24, 17. Now, Jacob had 12 sons. And we are told that of the 12 sons, the Messiah would come not through Joseph, who is a type of Christ. He's a foreshadowing of Christ and a very noble son, but from the scoundrel of the family named Judah. So out of 12 sons, Judah is going to be the one that the Messiah comes through. We're told that in Genesis 49.10, and that is also told us, again, in Psalm 78, verse 67 and 68. Now, of the descendants of Judah... We're told that everyone is going to be rejected as a, as a potential lineage for the Messiah, except for one, and that is the family of Jesse. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2 tells us that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. So Jesse is going to be the one that this Messiah comes through. And then, of all the sons of Jesse, the youngest, the most obscure, the most, you know, the least obvious choice 
David is who this, who this Messiah is going to come through, and Jeremiah 23.5 confirms that amongst many other scripture. So the Lord's narrowed down the Messiah's family tree until it could only be a descendant of Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, through Jesse, and then through David. Now, if you go to the first words of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in Matthew, it lists all his genealogy, and his genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus, matches perfectly. Now, there's some people who are skeptics, and they've said, well, Jesus, he worked his life out to try to make it where it would fit some of these prophecies. We're going to address that in a big part here in a little bit. But understand, the guy cannot make up who he was born from, how he was born, who he was born through. There's no way he could have manufactured that. Now, we can then begin to look at his birth. According to the, New, the Old Testament, not only would Jesus be born from David's family, but he would be born in David's city, which is Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 said, You, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me the one who is to be ruler of Israel, the one whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The Messiah that has been prophesied for thousands of years is going to come from this little tiny place called Bethlehem. And I don't have the time this morning to get into this, but if you will, um, there's a study we could do that has to do with the fact that God actually manipulated the entire Roman Empire to cause the birth of the Messiah to take place in Bethlehem. Because um, just real briefly, in, in, in Israelite society, in Jewish society, there was this idea of the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee made it uh, – the year of Jubilee was actually introduced 4,000 years before Christ as a mechanism to ensure that he would be born where the prophecy said he would be born. Why do I say that? Because the year of Jubilee ensured that property would be maintained in perpetuity by a certain person or a certain family. So if you owned property, even if that property was sold for a profit, when the year of Jubilee came about, that property would end up returning to the original owner, and that would happen over and over and over and over and over again. So Joseph was from the lineage of David, but the property that his family owned was in Bethlehem. So even though he lived more than 100 miles from Bethlehem, the Roman Empire ended up taking a census. In, in those days, the Roman citizens were not taxed. The only people who were taxed were the societies that were conquered by the Romans. There's a whole lesson for our society in that, that statement right there, but I'm not going to go there right now. So the Roman citizens were not taxed. The only time they were taxed is on specific – when specific – um, government ordinances were issued that they needed a tax. And when that would happen, they would tax them based on where their property ownership was. And so the people had to go to where they owned their property to be a member of the census. And again, that's a law that was created in the Roman Empire. They could have taken a census on where they lived but they didn't do it that way. God orchestrated the Roman Empire to take the census based on where they owned property. Now, for most people in the Roman Empire, that meant right where you were because they didn't have this issue of the, of the year of Jubilee. But Joseph had to go to Bethlehem because his property was there. So he goes more than 100 miles to get there with his wife who is you know, near childbirth. And here's the thing I want you to know just as another thing. Think about this family. You know, we have this picture of Mary and Joseph riding on a donkey. Mary and Joseph were of the poorest class of society at this time. It is almost inconceivable that they would have owned a donkey. 
it is very, very likely, it's, 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 it's most probable that they went on this journey by foot. And if you will do a map study on the journey that they took, they descended more than 1,100 feet. They, they, they were uh, at 1,100 feet above sea level. They had to descend. The path they would have taken would have taken them to about 60 feet below sea level, and then a final arduous 15-mile trek, 3,600 square feet back up above sea level, up to where Bethlehem was. It would have been an unbelievably arduous journey, especially for a woman who was with child. So here you have the Messiah being predicted to be born in Bethlehem, all these things having to take place. And of course, where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. Then Isaiah 7:14 predicts that the Lord was going to be born of a virgin. Now, what's interesting about the virgin birth is if you go back to the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis 3.15, we also are told that the, the Lord will be born of a virgin all the way back in Genesis. Why do I say that? Well, your NIV Bible and a lot of your modern Bibles, they translate it when the curse is or when the prediction is given. It said um, I will put enmity between you and, your, uh, and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. But if you look at the literal Greek, it says the seed of the woman. Now, that's a very interesting phrase because women don't have seeds. Women have eggs, and all people, you know, every human who's ever been born has been born from the seed of of a man. But the prediction in Genesis 3.15 that is restated in a different way in Isaiah 7 is that there will be a woman who has a seed in and of herself where no man is necessary. Now, um, Isaiah 7.14 says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we have the virgin birth prophesied again in Isaiah 7:14. Some skeptics have said, well the word virgin there means young woman, it means maiden. It doesn't actually mean a woman who's never been with a man. Let me just tell you that this this word is only used 7 times in scripture. And every one of the 7 times it means very precisely a woman who's never been with a man. Um there's just it's just not conceivable that that is what it, what is being said there and we have in Matthew and in Luke confirmation that that's what's meant because a Greek word is used in Matthew and Luke both of which have no um there's no uh no dispute over what they mean. Now, in Malachi 3, 1 and 4, 5, it says the Messiah would be preceded by an Elijah-like figure who would live in the wilderness and cry out a message warning people to prepare the way for him. Of course, that ends up happening. John the Baptist became a guy who lived in the wilderness, and he was as a voice crying out in the wilderness saying, Make where, prepare ye the way for the Lord. So um, these are just a few of the prophecies that have to do with the birth of Jesus. And guys, again, we could spend days and days going through all of these prophecies concerning his birth, the manner he was born, the place he was born, etc. Now, let's go and, and, and look at his life. You know, if we look at... Um, If we look at, at uh, I'm sorry, give me one second. If we look at Isaiah 6, or I'm sorry, uh, 6, 1, 1, it said that, the, the, that Christ would be anointed by the Holy Spirit, empower him to preach the gospel to the poor, and release those in spiritual bondage, and give sight to the blind. Again, all these things were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9, 1 through 2 predicts that Christ would be identified with the despised of the society and that he would hang out with Gentiles. This also happened. Um, Christ settled in Nazareth. Um, Nazareth was, um, there was a Roman garrison stationed there in Nazareth. And um, later he lived his life in Capernaum, which was again a Gentile place to live. Isaiah 53, 4 said that Christ would bear um, the sickness of his people. And Matthew states that is fulfilled 
in his ministry in Matthew 8:17 when it says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Elijah he took our illness and he bore our diseases Isaiah 35 5 through 6 and Isaiah 61 1 through 2 um, indicate that Christ's earthly ministry would give sight to the blind heal the lame cleanse lepers raise the dead and preach good news to the poor Again, all things that he fulfilled. Isaiah 42, 2 through 4 said um, he would be unlike the Pharisees. He would not be quarrelsome. He would not be contentious. He would be kind and compassionate. He would not be someone who spoke down to the weak, but rather he would raise up the weak and the feeble, and he would comfort them. And for that reason, many Gentiles would believe. And of course, we know that that was fulfilled. Matthew 9, or 12, 19 through 21 says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will find hope. Psalm 78, 2 predicted that Christ would preach in parables and reveal previously hidden mysteries and previously hidden truths. And of course, the Gospels are replete with the numbers of mysteries that he revealed and the numbers of parables that he told. In Zechariah 9, 9, it predicts that Christ would have a triumphal entry into Jerusalem riding as a king on a donkey. Of course, Matthew 21 fulfills that. Psalm 118.26 predicts that Christ would come to the nations as a deliverer and that people would crying, be crying out to him, crying out that he deliver them. Again, that is also fulfilled. Psalm 110.1 describes Christ as greater than David, and he is one whom David would recognize as Lord and would eventually that Christ would subdue all of his enemies. In Psalm 118.22, it declares that Christ is going to be rejected. The Christ being like the all-important cornerstone that ties a building together would be rejected by the Jewish people. That is, of course, fulfilled. Isaiah 29.13 says that people will give Christ lip service, but they would not genuinely obey him. Matthew 15, verse 8 through 9 um, makes it clear that that was fulfilled. Zechariah 13.7 declares that Christ is going to be forsaken by all his friends at the most crucial moment. And of course, that was fulfilled. All but the apostle John abandoned him at the time of crucifixion. And the Old Testament prophets predicted that Christ would um, be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Of course, that happened. Judas Iscariot betrays Christ for precisely 30 pieces of silver. Now, if we look at how he died, again, more prophecies fulfilled. Psalm 22 depicts that how Christ would suffer. David uses all these poetic expressions to vividly portray the intensity of Christ's agony. And these figures of speech, it was thought back in the Old Testament, it was just a figure of speech. They became literal in Christ's death. Psalm 22.1 says that Christ would cry on the cross where he would bear the sins of the world. Verse 7 describes that passers-by, people walking by him, would ridicule him. That is fulfilled in Matthew 27. In Psalm 22.8, it prophesied the actual words that they would hurl at him. Matthew 27 records the precise words are the same words predicted in Psalm 22. Verse 16 prophesies that Christ would have his hands and his feet pierced. Now understand this. There was no concept of crucifixion until the Roman Empire. The, the thousands of years earlier when Psalms is written, the idea of someone's hands and feet being pierced was completely foreign idea. No one knew what was being referred to there. And of course, we know that Jesus had both his hands and his feet pierced. Verse 17 of Psalm 22 indicates that none of Christ's bones would be broken. Now, it was common practice when someone was crucified to just get it over with by coming along and breaking the legs of those 
who are are hanging on the cross so that they cannot hold themselves up and get air. The, the way that you die in crucifixion is not actually through bleeding to death or through the nails. It is through asphyxiation. You, you lose your ability to hold yourself up, and you just suffocate. Well, they would try to you know hurry things along by breaking the bones of those being crucified, and we have it recorded that the thieves on the cross to his left and to his right did have their bones broken so this would happen. Christ, the guard, does not break his bones, but instead pierces his side with a spear. It is also common that the bones would be broken in the very act of being crucified. When the person would when the person's cross would be dropped into the ground, many times the force would be so great that it would break collarbones. It would break um, the, 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 the sockets of the, um, the shoulders. But this did not happen to Jesus. So that was fulfilled. Psalm 22:18 prophesies that soldiers would gamble for the Messiah's clothes. And, of course, we see that happening. John 19:24, they, they cast lots to have his cloak. In Psalm 22:24, it prophesies what Christ, what the Messiah would say on the cross, his very words. In fact, it says, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction or the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him, and then it says his words. Well, in Matthew 26:39, it says what it says in Psalm 22, um, you know, why hast thou forsaken me? In Isaiah 52 and 53, it portrays the suffering of Christ in great detail, and it describes his disfigurement. It, re- it describes his scourging, and of course, in John 19, we have the scourging. We have exactly what's described in Isaiah 53. Um, so, guys, I, I just could go on and on and on and on, but here's the point. Christ has fulfilled all of these prophecies, and I just would just say this to you. Um, if, if you look at how many prophecies have been fulfilled, and you look at the mathematical pro- probability of them being fulfilled in anything other than someone that is, is a supernatural being, it's just not even possible. Um, most of these prophecies were made about Christ hundreds, if not thousands of years before his birth. Like I said, about 300 predictions stretch through all the books of the Old Testament. Now, there's a guy named Peter Stoner, who is chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy um, for Pasadena City College, and he was the chairman of the science division of Westmont College, and he was the professor emeritus of science at Westmont. And he wrote a book called Science Speaks, in which he applied mathematical principles of probability to all these Old Testament predictions. And in the chapter relating to Messianic prophecy, Stoner selected eight of the many predictions in Scripture relating to Christ's life and ministry and formulated the mathematical probability of their coming true in one single man. And he he and his students wanted to know what the chances were that any one man in accordance to predicted prophecy would be born in Bethlehem, preceded by a forerunner, enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey, be betrayed by his friend for 30 pieces of silver, be placed on trial, and though innocent, make no defense for himself and be crucified. What is the chance that any one man might have lived from the day of these prophecies down to the present time and fulfilled all eight of these predictions? His answer, it was the chances are one in ten to the 17th power. Okay, what kind of chance is that? If you covered the entire state of Texas with silver dollars to a depth of two feet – So the entire state of Texas is covered with silver dollars two feet high. Then mark one of those silver dollars and drop it somewhere in the pile, and then stir the pile thoroughly. The chance of a blindfolded man choosing that marked silver dollar on the first try is is equal to the chances of all eight of those prophecies being fulfilled in one man. And yet, yet, it's only eight. There's not eight. There's more than 300 that he fulfills. It is not possible that anything other than a supernatural being could be 
the person to fulfill all 300 of those prophecies. And therefore, when we look at Jesus Christ and we look at him coming in the fullness of time, what we see is this great deliverer, this great savior who is predicted right at the fall of mankind when sin entered the world is the one born on Christmas Day. He is the one we've waited for thousands and thousands of years. And he is our hope. Now that we have had that happen, we can look back and everything has changed because he came. This is why we're so fired up at Christmas. This is why we're so excited because we know that the deliverer, that millions of people waited in anticipation and just prayed and prayed, God, please send him, please send him. He finally came. And so that leads to the last part of the study, which is this. What is the whole point? Why did Jesus come? What is the point of this Messiah needing to be here? People say he was a savior. Well, saving us from what? If we have a savior, what are we being saved from? If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's verse 3, it says this, I delivered as to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. He came, folks, because we are separated from God. We are separated because man fell in the garden, and we have never had a way to get back. There's this idea, if you ask most people in the world, if you die today, are you going to go to heaven? Most people would say, yes, I'm going. And if you were to ask them why they're going to heaven, they would give you some answer that says something like this, I'm a pretty good person. They would compare themselves to the worst people they could imagine. I'm not a murderer, not a rapist. I'm a pretty good person, and so I'm going to heaven. But what Scripture makes clear is that being pretty good is not good enough. God himself had to come here and die because this, the problem of sin is so great. You see, God is holy. Isaiah 5.16 says, the Lord Almighty is exalted by his justice. The holiness of God is displayed by his righteousness. And holiness and, and sin are completely incompatible. Think about a bucket of paint that is white. It is pure white. White cannot exist with any element of darkness. If you drop even a dropper full, even one drop of black paint into that white paint, it is no longer pure white. It is tainted even ever so slightly. And so God is so holy. He is so pure. His holiness, his righteousness is completely incompatible with sin. Romans 5.12 said, when Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race. Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and all all fall short of God's glorious standard. We are insufficient in of ourselves to be righteous. You know, people say, I'm good. Here's the way you should think about that. You know, um, there's been some, some really great swimmers in, in the past couple of decades. We had, um, you know, Mark Spitz. Now we have Michael Phelps. These guys are unbelievable swimmers. They're way better swimmer than I am, probably a way better swimmer than you are. But if you take Mark uh, Spitz or Michael Phelps and me, and you put us both on the coast of California, and you say, Hawaii's out there, guys. Just swim. All three of us are going to drown before we get to Hawaii. The gap between California and Hawaii is just too great. It doesn't matter that Michael Phelps is so much better a swimmer than me. He is still not good enough a swimmer to get to Hawaii. Well, guys, that's the distance between our righteousness and God's righteousness. Our righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags in comparison to the righteousness of God. Sin has separated us from God. Isaiah 35, 8 says, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you, it says in Isaiah 59 too. 
And so we've sinned. We've been separated. And the problem is that sin has a punishment, and that is death. That was also introduced to us in Genesis. You know, a lot of pictures of Adam and Eve, when you see pictures and paintings, it shows Adam and Eve with the, like, fig leaves. But the fig leaves were like a temporary thing. Adam and Eve were actually just hiding amongst the leaves. But God actually clothed them. He clothed them in his own righteousness. He brings them animal skins. Now, when he brings them those animal skins, that is the first time death had ever existed in, in, in our world. And so he shows us this principle. We have to shed blood to cover over sin. And from then on, we have the sacrificial system. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But there's good news. It then says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.21 says, just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful kindness rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus paid the price. He was the perfect lamb. He was the lamb that could pay the penalty that no other lamb could pay. And when he went to the cross for us, he paid, every, he paid for every one of our sins so that when we will clothe ourselves with his righteousness, when God looks at us, he sees us as clean. It's like he puts on a pair of glasses and he's seeing us through the filter of that lens of the penalty that Christ paid for us. So, we have this blessed hope that if we will just simply trust in what Christ did for us on the cross, we can be saved. First Peter 1, 18, 19 says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. He paid for you with the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. There's only one way we can be saved, and it is through Christ. And we can only be saved through Christ because he came. And that is the blessing of Christmas. It's the greatest gift of all time. It's the reason we celebrate. It's the reason that we rejoice. It's why we sing joy to the world. Come, all ye faithful. These things have so much meaning because we know we have now been made, as I said at the very beginning, heirs with God. We are co heirs with Christ to the throne of God. We've been adopted as sons and daughters because of his coming. I know we're running out of time. I just want to wrap with a couple of things. You know, if you are sitting on this call today and you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, let this Christmas be the start. Let this Christmas be the best Christmas ever, the most memorable ever, where you don't get a gift that's going to spoil or fade. It's not a piece of clothing that will go out of style. It's not a piece of technology that will become obsolete. It's not a band that's going to become boring to you later. It is something that is priceless, that's imperishable, and that is to know with certainty that you were made with a purpose, that God has a great plan for your life, and that he's been waiting all your life to this moment right now when you're on the phone to see you turn to him and recognize your fulfillment in Christ of everything that he's purposed for you and have you turn your life over to him and know for certainty that if you were to die, you're going to spend eternity in heaven and that you have a, a purpose that will go on throughout the ages beyond when this earth passes away. Because, guys, look, heaven is not sitting around on clouds playing harps. We're not going to have little wings. Heaven is going to be a new place. It's going to be a new creation with new challenges, with new exciting things that we're going to be able to be involved in because we're going to be co laborers with Christ for all eternity because we have been adopted as sons and daughters with him. So how do you do that? You simply tell him, God, I want to turn it over to you. I see that you are who you said you were. I see that when I have this question of what do I do with Christ, there's only one clear answer, that you are truly God. You are who you claim to be, and I'm going to trust in you as my Savior. I'm not going to trust in my righteousness. I'm not going to trust in something I can do. I'm not going to trust in some work. I'm not going to trust in how much money I've given. Nothing like that. I'm going to trust in what you did for me on the cross. There's no magic words. It's that 
that position of your heart that says, I'm a sinner. I want to turn from my sin and give my life to you. Pray that to God today. In your words, tell him something like that. And if you would truly intend that in your heart, you will be saved. You know, I'll just close with a couple of things. There's a famous poem that was written or, or a little, little essay, and it says this. He was born in an obscure village the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when his friends ran away. One of them denied him, and he was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves, and while dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on the entire earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, all put together, have not affected the life of mankind on earth as power, powerfully as that one solitary life. You know, Napoleon Bonaparte knew something about leadership and affecting history. He was one of the greatest military commanders of all time. And Napoleon said this about Jesus. He said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of people would die for him. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me, and his, his will confounds me. I search in vain in history to find something similar to Jesus Christ or anything that can approach the gospel. Guys, R.G. Lee was a famous Baptist preacher who said this, There was never another who caused all creation to be ransacked in pursuit of words appropriate to convey to human hearts and minds his glorious preeminence. There was never another who was a human child and also a divine son. There was never another who was wounded by Satan and who at the same time crushed Satan, who was appointed the savior of men, yet was crucified by men, who was judge of men, yet was led as a felon from one tribunal to another. There was never another who died and was buried and yet lived, who saved others and himself could not save, who had no sin in him, yet all sin on him, who was the king of glory, yet wore no crown but a crown of thorns, who in the glory he had with God before the world was, and the angelic hails of heaven, and yet on earth, gave himself to the murderous nails of men. There was never another who was the prince of life, and yet died on Calvary. He who was as of old as his heavenly father, and ages older than his earthly mother. There was never another who was the victim of a Roman cross and victor of a Jewish grave. There was never another who poured all the seas, all the lakes, all the rivers, all the crystal chalices of all eternity out of himself, and yet on a cross said with a mouth hot like a parched desert, I thirst. The Jesus of Nazareth without money and arms conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon put together. Without science and learning, he shed more light on matters human and divine than all the philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects in which life beyond the reach of every order and poet. Without writing a single line, he has set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times all put together. I present to you, Jesus Christ is the supreme being in all of human history. He is the supreme being in all of the universe, both inside time, space, continuum, and outside of it. And he came to us, born of a virgin, born as an infant, at Christmas time. So I wish you guys a very Merry Christmas. I say this Christmas, celebrate in full the greatness of your Savior 
And if you don't know him, I pray that you will come to know him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us such solid ground to stand on. Thank you, Lord, that your Savior has come to us and that we can know for certain that he is of you because he fulfills so many prophecies that are so old and so specific. There's no conceivable manner in which a human could pull that off apart from you. I pray, God, for each of us sitting on this call today that we would know you in a new way today, that we would celebrate you in a deeper, more passionate way today. And I pray for those of us on the call that don't know you as Savior, that we would set aside our pride, we would turn our hearts to you, we would give our lives to you, and that we would serve you completely. Lord, we know that in you we find our purpose and our fulfillment. We find the completeness of joy and happiness and satisfaction, and all of our longings are fulfilled in you. We pray this, Lord. Give us grace to go about the rest of this season in the manner that you have called us to. pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Merry Christmas, everyone. You guys have a great day.